Hey everyone, I've got something a little bit different for you for this and next week's podcast episodes. Um, what you're going to hear is a class that I co-teach with my good friend Chris Lenore at my church, High Point Church in Altoona, Iowa. Uh, this is part of a much longer series that we teach called the Theology Program, which we have adapted from the material available from Credo House Ministries. Uh, it's effectively just kind of like what this ministry is, honestly. It's it's a deep dive into understanding why we believe certain things that we believe. Uh, the class that you're going to hear is part of our Bibliology and Hermeneutics class, which is basically what is the Bible, how did we get it, and we're going to be talking about two different topics. Um, the first is how the Roman Catholic Church views things like the sufficiency of Scripture and tradition, and then next week will be how we as Protestants would view the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, now, I'll be honest, basically the reason I'm doing this is that I am still kind of recovering from COVID. Um, and so while health-wise I'm fine, there is a kind of a brain fog and fatigue there. And so I figured, uh, you know, while I typically obviously don't post the um, audio from classes, um, one, this saves me from having to use my brain too much. And two, this was kind of a unique situation because we were actually locked out of our building. And so while we would typically teach this standing up in front of people, we actually decided to just uh, sit down at the church office and record it as more of a conversation instead of a teaching um, style. So it might sound a little different. Um, it, it was very much kind of thrown together spur of the moment. So we, you know, you can, it, it's a little rough to start with as we're kind of getting into our groove, but it's a great conversation, really good information, and something that I hope uh, you all enjoy listening to. Now, if you want to see the notes that we're talking about here, because this is kind of a PowerPoint presentation, I will put a link down in the show notes that will take you to Chris's channel where he will have this available. Um, here we are, session two, Sola Scriptura, answering the question, is the scripture all we need? Uh, we, I am here with Ray Burns tonight. We are recording this, uh, not as a traditional class, because we were locked out of our building. Yeah, but uh, we decided we're going to go ahead and record it, let everybody watch it. This will be a little bit different, because this will be more of a discussion instead of just uh, a standard class. And so, uh, Ray, why don't you say hi? Hey, everybody. And, and he, he survived everybody from COVID. I did. Although <laughs> I, I think I'm destined not to be in front of the class, apparently. So we'll see what week what week three brings us to keep me out of out of the spotlight. Well, there you go. And if you can't make it next week, uh, you know, the week after that, we're, we're not even having class because it's you know Super Bowl. You know, we can't oh, compete yes. with the Super Bowl. No, most important thing. Yeah, most important thing of the year. Um, you know, you have Super Bowl, Easter, and Christmas, uh, and then people's birthdays. So uh, what are you <laughs> going to do there? So, uh, Ray, we're asked, answering the question tonight, is the scripture all we need? So, help me think through that a little bit. Why would anyone even ask that question? Uh, I mean, with our, with our modern thinking, um, you know, scripture is a source of absolute truth. And on one hand, we don't like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't like something that we can't define our own truth. We don't like having to come under something that defines truth over us. Uh, so, I mean, that's one problem we run into. Um, we also see through history, as you know, we're going to kind of talk tonight, just in general, has Scripture been sufficient for the church and Christians throughout history? Has there been more? And today, do we really want to say that Scripture is all we need, or is there something that we as a church are missing? Yeah, and I think even for a lot of us as Christians, <clears throat> I think there might be people out there who are going to watch this and say, well, of course Scripture isn't all I need. Because there'd be lots of people that say, well, no, what about, what if I need counseling? You know, I need to go to my counselor. And they mm -hmm. don't use the Bible, you know. Or how about when I go to vote? Well, I don't use the Bible when I vote, you know. And so I think sometimes in our culture, there's this detachment that, hey, when we're at church, Scripture's good things. It's maybe something I do in the morning, go to a Bible study. But when it comes to the practical day-to-day -day stuff, uh, Scripture's not needed. It's just not relevant. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I guess that's a good point on we need to define what we mean by all we need because is it is it an answer book where we just open it up to paragraph three sentence seven or do we mean something different when we say that scripture is all we need or that scripture is completely sufficient which really kind of gets to the crux of what we're going to be talking about because tonight we're going to go through uh sola scriptura uh as it says for session two here and then we're also going to be talking about uh sola ecclesia 
mm-hmm. uh, and the two opposing views. Where the Roman Catholic Church comes along and says, hey, with their view, uh, it's tradition and scripture. Of mm-hmm. course nobody would say scripture is all we need. We, we need this other tradition. Uh, where Sola Scriptura says, whoa, whoa, scripture is the final authority for our faith and practice. And that includes even the mundane things of life. Uh, because we take our emotions and our experiences and the things we see in creation and we take our reason and even our traditions and we submit it under scripture, right? So uh, good conversation we're going to have tonight. Ray, why don't you open us up a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Sure. God, um, we just come before you in the name of Christ. Uh, first of all, so thankful for the technology that allows us to do this, where we can keep moving forward in our class and connect even if we can't be together uh, I pray that tonight you will guide Chris and I, um, even though this is a spur-of-the-moment thing, um, we have been preparing for it, and so just let it come across well, uh, let it be valuable and useful, um, and just let it be a good conversation where we really dig into what it truly means to value your word in every aspect of our lives, and um, making very certain that we are honoring you in how we balance um, scripture along with maybe anything else that we have. Uh, so just bless this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, you know, we started answering these questions last week. You know, what is tradition? What does the Roman Catholic Church reject? Sola Scriptura. Um, you know, why did the Reformers reject the absolute authority of tradition? Uh, is Sola Scriptura to be blamed for all the separation in the Protestant Church? Um, and can I just, can I study the Bible on my own and just let the Holy Spirit guide me to all truth? Um, you know, and then finally, is sola scriptura dangerous? We'll answer that question tonight as well. Uh, because while sola scriptura is a phrase that we've probably all heard, at least in some fashion before, um, it's not necessarily apparent exactly where maybe things can go wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about solo scriptura yes, uh, solo. in comparison to. Um, so the last time we met, we had five primary views, the sola ecclesia, uh, prima scriptura, Regula Fidei, or Rule of Faith, uh, Sola Scriptura, and then uh, the important one, Solo Scriptura, of what sometimes people get wrong. And remember, look at this here. Sola and Solo are so close. Uh, we want to be very careful not to confuse the two because they say drastically different things. So as a reminder, uh, Ray, remind us what Sola Ecclesia is. Uh, so Sola Ecclesia is basically just the belief that um, the church, or especially church traditions, as established by church leaders, is our primary source of truth, or at the very least, an equal on equal footing with Scripture itself. So, so you're saying they would take tradition and, and put it on the same level as Scripture? They would, and with with uh, good justifiable reasons on their part too. Oh wow! So, are we going to actually argue for the Roman Catholic view for a little bit here? Uh, we'll be fair. We'll be fair. We'll be fair. <laughs> yeah, we may. Ray and I may not hold to this, but we're going to at least argue as if we were holding that view to try to be as fair as possible. Uh, the last thing we ever want to do is try to build straw man arguments just so we can knock them down. Yeah, that's boring. It is boring. <laughs> so much better to actually know your opponent's side so you can have a good discussion. So. Uh, so, Ray, you found this uh, interesting uh, constitution. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so it's the, I think it's called the Die Verbum, um, but it's the, uh, it was ratified by the Second Vatican Council in 1965, um, overwhelmingly voted positive. Hmm. Um, and it's basically, it's, it's a long document, but what we're going to look at is one part of it that speaks specifically about how they view tradition in the Roman Catholic sense alongside scripture. And where it is that they get their understanding and their thinking. And this is important because, you know, we don't want to just talk about the Roman Catholic Church and say they believe all these things without evidence. You know, we want to point people to to what they've actually said. And so this is, you know, I mean, 1965, a recent thing where they, you know, people are still in living memory having voted for this. Um, and this just shows what it is that they say about inspiration and things like that. Yeah, and the interesting thing to point out here, too, is is look at the voting. This is the magisterium that we talk about sometimes with the Roman Catholic Church. The vote was 2,344 to 6. So this wasn't some back end where the church was divided on this. Uh, there was a filibuster going until some backroom deal was made and something <laughs> yeah. slowly passed through and nobody knows what it is. They knew exactly what they were voting on. And yeah. so when they did this, this is something that the Roman Catholic Church teaches still today. 
and they affirm and, and hold to being uh, how they understand tradition and scripture. So uh, why don't you read some highlights here from this? All right. Uh, should we do the whole thing or just want the, the big parts? Because I think there's really only two things that really stand out. Point out the major things. Okay. What do people need to know from uh, this? So the first one we have bolded here, just kind of in the center. It says, for sacred scripture is the word of God inasmuch as it is consigned to writing under the inspiration of the divine spirit. While sacred tradition takes the word of God entrusted by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit to the apostles and hands it on to their successors in its full purity. So essentially what that's talking about is that um, you know, sacred scripture, it says, is the word of God only insofar as God has inspired that specific writing. But then sacred tradition are these other beliefs or these other understandings that have basically taken where scripture has left off and continued on to be almost like a living Bible on its own, where God has, in a way, almost divinely inspired this tradition in the same way he divinely inspired the concrete words of God that we read in the Bible. So, so hold on for a moment. As we, as we talk about that, just so people understand what we're saying is, you know, most people under, understand the idea that the Bible's inspired. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might even say that God preserves it over history, which I would agree with, right? Yeah. So what the Roman Catholic Church is saying, though, there's this unwritten knowledge bank mm-hmm. that is passed down from the apostles to each successive generation of pastors in the Roman Catholic Church or, or, or priests or popes or bishops or whatever you want to call them. And the Holy Spirit is actively keeping that from being corrupted. Yeah. So just in the same way he, we would say he preserves his word, he also preserves sacred tradition under the Roman Catholic understanding. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite a lot to take in here. Um, and then if we so on the next slide there, um, this is where they really um, nail down what they believe about tradition. So it says, consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. So if ever you wanted a statement on how Roman Catholics treat tradition in the Bible, they literally say they are to be treated with equal reverence. So you think of how we view God's word, the sacredness that we hold to it, the, um, the impact that it has in our lives, how we turn to it regularly with everything in our lives. They would do the exact same thing with tradition. Yeah, I mean, it's right here in their document. Sacred scripture or holy scripture would be another way of saying that. And sacred or holy tradition. I mean, they really are venerating them and putting them on the same level. Yeah, 100%. So as we talk about this then, you know, the, the big thing to see is that, you know, we're not making this up. We're not uh, painting them in bad light. They, this is generally what they believe, and they have a good reason, as we're going to try to look at, for why they would argue in this way. All right, well, let's get into these arguments for uh, Sola Ecclesia. Or, as just to remind everybody, they would actually call it dual source theory. Uh, Sola Ecclesia would be the Protestant uh, understanding of it, which they don't necessarily like. Cause, yeah. um, so, uh, so, argument number one here. Um, you know, they would say that, uh, that this was taught in Scripture. They would say the Scriptures clearly say that there were many other things that Christ did that were not written down. Uh, and you may say, well, where do they get that idea from? Well, I mean, I'm glad you asked because it's right here in, in John 21, 25. Uh, John wrote this. He said, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, uh, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books uh, that would be written. So uh, they would say basically along the lines is, you know, the things that are written down, that's your Holy Scripture. But all the things that Jesus did that were not written down, John and the other apostles knew, and they told the next successive generation. And that's your tradition part of it. Uh, Ray, tell us about this next one here. So New Testament writers very clearly speak about the importance of tradition. As we're going to see, there are several verses where um, the Catholic Church has a good foundation uh, from reading these. So uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So here we have two things. One is it very clearly says traditions, and it also says that these traditions can come from letter, which we would understand as scripture, or by word of mouth, which would be this kind of unwritten bank of tradition that um, the Roman Catholic Church has preserved. You know, it's funny, when I was teaching the morning class, somebody in that class said, that's not in scripture. They would, how do they even pull, prove that? And then I showed him these verses and his mouth dropped. So it's like, oh. Yeah, so they, they do get this from scripture or at least have found scripture to support this idea. Yes, yeah. yep. Um, First uh, Corinthians 11.2, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So again, we have this idea, these are traditions and they were delivered orally mm. just as, um, as they would be doing today. 
And then uh, Jude 1.3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So once again, we have this idea of a, of a knowledge bank being passed down. And Jude is even saying to, to fight for this thing, to hold firm to it, mm. and to, to not let you know, those, those dirty uh, Protestants you know, tear you down for it. Because there is a faith that is being passed down generation to generation that we need to preserve and fight for. Yeah, it might be a little bit like this idea, like in a lot of people's homes, you know, some families, they have written down rules, family rules, right? Mm -hmm. And it might be along the lines of, you know, um, you know, never don't call each other names uh, and, or, or clean off your plate and put it into the dishwasher. And these might be written down, but there's also usually unwritten rules at the same yeah. time, too. Uh, that kids understand what they need to follow. And, and whether it's written down or not, they're still obligated to follow those type things. And that's a little bit kind of what we're talking about to kind of put it into perspective. And even with that, they'll still they'll pass a lot of those traditions down, not even realizing it. And, and that will be, they'll make generations of families who are following these traditions that no one ever told them to do. That's just, exactly. that's what gets passed on. Yep. So uh, number three here, uh, argument for it. Uh, Christ gave infallible authority over to the church. To the apostles and their successors, this is called apostolic succession, uh, with Peter and his successors being given the ultimate authority in the church, or the papacy of the seat of Rome. Now, a lot, many people, the idea of apostolic succession might be a new term, mm -hmm. but what most people don't realize is that even Protestants believe in apostolic succession. We just define it differently. Sure. This is the idea that the apostles, you know, who were the foundation of the church, uh, they had this good deposit of faith that they passed on to the next generation and to the next generation and the next generation. Well, we as Protestants would understand this as this is the gospel. This is how you live as a, a Christian for sanctification, uh, how you do church in some ways. And that was passed down. Uh, but what they're saying in the Roman Catholic Church, though, really is, hey, no, it's from bishop to bishop or pastor to pastor. And there's this unwritten uh, body of truth outside of scripture that they're adhering to, which is very different. Because as Protestants, we would say what the apostles passed on, they wrote down. Right. Yeah. And so that's why we're constantly going back to scripture. What did Paul say? What did John say? What did Peter say? And so here's where they get this idea. In June, John 20, 23, Christ, when he was speaking to the apostles, said, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And so they would come along and say, listen, Christ gave the apostles the ability to forgive sin. And that is one of the things that is passed down from pastor to pastor in the Roman Catholic Church, which is why Roman Catholics, they go to confession to yeah. find forgiveness. Uh, and then they have to repent and do penance oftentimes, like their Hail Marys or whatever the case might be prescribed by the priest. Yeah, so that's that mix of they can argue from scripture, but then they can also, you know, the things like the Hail Marys that you can't necessarily find in scripture, that's part of that unwritten tradition that's been passed down with equal authority as what's said here in John. Absolutely. It's the, per it's the perfect blend example of the two. Uh, and then Matthew eighteen eighteen. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, you shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Um, and so whatever we think that might mean as Protestants, the Roman Catholics would at least come along and say, listen, what you do on earth will be honored in heaven. So they can actually almost make any rule they want because they're, they're the guardians of this deposit of faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if they come up with something new or understanding or whatever the case is, uh, then it's the idea is God will continue to honor it because he's working through the church, whether it's in scripture or not. Matthew 16, 17 through 19, then, and Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say also to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so they would come along and say, Listen, see, Peter, he's the first pope. And he, he was the one who had the good deposit of faith and passed it on to the successive popes or, or bishops of Rome throughout history. Yeah. And so, and this is, you know, with, with all these, you're going to see, it makes sense. When you read it from their perspective, you know, you can see how they get there. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where it's important to be able to understand not just what is said, but what is meant as well. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important to put ourselves in that perspective. If, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and that's all you've ever known, to try to understand anything different would be difficult. It'd yeah. be jarring because you would just, not only what you might be taught these things, but you'd also be living them out, uh, assuming you're practicing going to church uh, Roman Catholic. 
Uh, Pope John Paul II of the Roman Catholic Church, even in 1992, he said this, guarding the deposit of faith is the mission which the Lord has entrusted to his church and which she fulfills in every age. And so they would define it as this guarding the deposit of faith or this tradition is the very mission of the church. Yes. Uh, whereas, you know, we as Protestants would come along and say, hey, guarding the deposit of faith is absolutely part of the mission of the church. But that deposit of faith is the gospel and it's contained in what's in scripture type thing. And so different definitions. All right, number four, right? Eh? All right, so without the infallible declaration of the church, there would be no way to, of knowing which books belong in the canon of Scripture. So here we would say that, you know, the, the Bible you hold today, you have thanks to the, the, the authority of the church itself. You know, God didn't come down and just divinely hand us the Bible and say, here are the books to keep, here are the books not to keep. It's only through the, the, um, the meeting together of the church and this tradition that has dictated for centuries that these are the books of the Bible that we hold to be divinely inspired, and these other ones are not. Now, of course, the Catholic Church would add a little bit more to what they see as divinely inspired, but ultimately, it is because of the church itself, this, this authority given by God, that we have the Bible that we even open to argue about whether sacred tradition is on equal level of Scripture. So it's, it's almost a, a conflict of interest to say, I believe this Bible is true, but I don't believe in the authority of the church that has, has established that this is what we are going to read and submit ourselves to. Yeah, um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, kind of how maybe that's not 100% accurate how they view it. Mm-hmm. Uh, number five here, without the infallible authority of the church, the church would be hopelessly divided on matters of doctrine and morals. Uh, this would not be the church that Christ started. And so the idea here is uh, they take the verses that Jesus talks about. The glory which you have given me, I give it to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. And so the idea here is, uh, Jesus was saying there should be unity within the church, right? And so the Roman Catholic Church says we do have unity. Uh, we have one pope, one arch magistrate, um, and all these churches all over the world answer answer to ultimately to the Vatican. And so the the argument comes along and says, listen, if if you did not have that hierarchy, then you'd have all these independent churches, and we would actually have all these different interpretations of the scripture. Because then, who can who can def, who can define what it actually says? Yeah, because there's there's no higher source that definitively says it's just a bunch of people on equal footing, arguing different points of view. And and they're right to a certain extent. They are. I mean, look at where we're sitting right now. We are sitting in the High Point Church office. Across the street from us is one church. Across the corner is another church. They're right. I mean, we have all these divisions, all these different understandings, and this, this what seems to be a fractured and disunified body of Christ that is completely opposite of what he was praying for. Yeah, absolutely. And so, in fact, they even like to say, sometimes in some of their writings, that there are 33,000 denominations in the Protestant church. Yes. Which might be a little bit of an exaggeration, yeah. um, but we'll, we'll answer that a little bit later as we talk about that. Um, so, now that we've argued for it, um, we're not going to respond to those arguments. So if you're sitting at home with your notes, you might want to just flip back. As we go to one, go back and look at the argument for refresh as we're going through it. We're not going to take the time to do that, though. So let's respond to the Sola Ecclesia uh, or the dual source theory. So the first one they did was, one, it is, it is self-evident that the Bible did not record everything that Jesus said and did. Uh, John's purpose in telling his readers this is not because he wants them to seek out unwritten tradition, to learn of these other things, but because he wants them to know what he has recorded contains sufficient information to bring one to salvation. There's no reason to think that people need exhaustive knowledge of all Christ said or did. The Bible is not exhaustive history. It is theological history. I sometimes think this is exasperated because in our current culture, there's so much reality TV where they have cameras on people for like long periods of time. And for some reason, Certain people find that interesting. I'm not sure I do. I'm not a reality TV guy. No, I'm with you. But sometimes I feel like that's what people want. They want like a reality TV show of three and a half years of Jesus' life in his ministry. I'm like, mm. I, I think a lot of it would be boring. You'd see him eating. You'd see him take bathroom breaks. You, I mean, all sorts of things and things that you just are not going to be relevant to what we do as Christians. Yeah. Right? Well, and, and another issue I think people run into is it's, 
you're approaching, you know, that where it talks about how there's all the stuff that Christ did that we don't know. And we approach it with two different aspects. One is, oh no, there's something we don't have, we are lacking. And so we want to, to know it all because there's something to be known. And especially in our information culture, we are so accustomed to being able to get an answer to everything. Whether it's right or not, we can at least get an answer to things. Or we can see the reality that, you know, Christ did all this, but this is what God gave us. We can be content that this is sufficient, that we have all we need for godly living, for the understanding of salvation and who God is and who we are in light of that. You know, two different, um, two different approaches to that is going to send us to two different places. Yeah, and, and so look here what John says, if you kind of look in context, John 20, 30 through 31, he says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the things that John actually included, he included for a purpose. And it was so that uh, what has been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have, may have life in his name. But that's what's important. Um, it's unrealistic to think that they would record absolutely everything that goes on. Uh, it's also, you know, just a good point. I like to point this out sometimes is oftentimes we, we like different movies, TV shows, or books that talk about the life of Jesus or the apostles. And it's inevitable as people write those things, produce those things, uh, and, and watch those things, that things are added that were not in Scripture. Sometimes just to make the story flow better. Sometimes because they think they, they have a point they want to drive home. Um, you know, one example to me is, you know, someone once showed me a clip of The Chosen, which I've never seen the whole show, but the, but the clip wasn't even scripture. It was Mary Magdalene coming to Jesus asking for forgiveness after she fell back into her sin. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not in the scriptures. And so we got to be very careful because we can be, just eat that stuff up sometimes, just think, oh, look how great this is. But it's not what God intended for us. Yeah. We've now essentially almost added to our understanding of scripture, maybe potentially dangerous because... In the future, what if what if somebody thinks that's in the Bible and then they go looking for it? I mean, it's not there. And, and conflict, conflict of interest at times. So, John MacArthur, um, just you know, a name we like to drop every once in a while. Uh, Sola Scriptura does not claim that everything Jesus or the apostles ever taught is preserved in Scripture. It only means that everything necessary, everything binding on our consciences, and everything God requires of us is given to us in Scripture. And this is where this whole class is going to be valuable because if we treat the Bible as just like this answer book or just a, a piece of you know recorded history, we're going to miss the whole point of why things were or weren't recorded. But you know, by taking this class and getting a more thorough understanding of what God's Word is, we're going to understand, okay, here's how we answer you know, you know, as best we can understand God's reasoning for you know, recording this divinely or not recording other things. Yep. Uh, number two there, right? All right, so um, regarding uh, what the Bible says about tradition, the New Testament does speak of the importance of tradition, but the tradition that is referred to in these passages is the gospel message that was eventually recorded in the New Testament, which we now call the Regula Fidei. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no reason to believe that the New Testament writers were speaking of some infallible, unwritten tradition that was separated from the message of the New Testament and that was to be passed on through an unbroken succession of bishops throughout the ages. So in other words... We would say the Roman Catholics say, oh, we have this, this deposit of faith, this unwritten tradition that's been passed down, and look, we can prove it in God's word. Mm-hmm. But there's no reason to think that when, when the, when the um, apostles were writing that they were thinking of this unwritten tradition and this deposit of faith that would be passed on that they were not writing down. Everything that they wrote down is what they wrote because we needed it. Yeah. And, and they had no mindset of, oh, well, when I'm talking about this tradition, I'm talking about the gospel tradition, but also something extra. No, they were just speaking purely of their tradition of what the gospel is and why we need Jesus Christ. It's a great story and a great idea, and it even seems to have some legs when you start to throw in some of those scriptures we looked at earlier. Mm-hmm. And you can see how somebody can be very convinced of it. Yeah. But when you really start to peel it back, uh, those verses are taken dramatically out of context yes. and, and just don't hold the weight that we're trying to thrust on it by saying there's some unwritten, infallible tradition. So I want to. This would be a good time to explain this chart. And, and as we look at this, this is very important. Um, I want to point out here we have a timeline here on the bottom. So from AD 33 to AD 100 is called the time of the apostles, and uh, that's when the apostles were active and uh, the part of the foundation of the church and establishing churches. And the time of the apostles dies out when the apostle John dies, which is roughly you know right before 100 AD. 
And then after that, you have the time of the Apostolic Fathers. And, and that runs from about 100 to 200. And it's called that time because these were men who were typically pastors and theologians in the church who were trained directly by the apostles. You know, one to two generations removed at the most. And so they, they knew, they grew up and were discipled in the stories of what Jesus did from the first-hand accounts of John and Peter and Paul and some of the other guys. And then after that, well, obviously, everybody dies, and they died out. And so the men that they trained were known as the theologians from A.D. 200 to 400. This whole group, the apostolic fathers and the theologians, is typically referred to as the church fathers. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that's our timeline. That's important to understand here, because when we come back up here, we have two lines. Line number one is the unwritten tradition, or the apostles' tradition, or teaching. Down here is this written tradition, what we call the New Testament. And notice here, as this... Uh, unwritten tradition starts out solid. That's all they had because, you know, the earliest books of the New Testament, you know, was 10, 15 years after the, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, right? And so, and then it wasn't until about 60s to 70s that the rest of it was kind of written and followed afterwards. And then the final book was written in 94, 96 AD, depending on where you want to put that at, uh, the revelation. And so uh, all you had was this unwritten tradition. Well, what happens here, that's fine. It's not written down. But even the apostles started to see this need to write things down. And you see them doing this. And they especially see the need as heresies start to pop up in the church. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes what we refer to as the Gnostic controversies. Right? You want to give us a quick rundown on the Gnostic controversies? Oh, a quick rundown. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, so Gnosticism and its core idea is this idea that spiritual things are good, physical material and things are bad and evil. Yeah. Um, and so there's all kinds of stuff. And so as you're reading, especially the epistles, right, the letters of Paul and Peter, um, you know, they, they'll talk about things. They'll talk about, you know, the, that Christ had a physical body and he was bodily resurrected um, and things like that. And the reason that they are saying these things is because they are dealing with this idea in the church that, you know, our goal is to transcend our physical material and only live in the spiritual, which runs into issues when Christ, who was God, made flesh, had a physical form. Mm. But that would mean that he was evil. And so it was this whole mess, uh, basically this alternative religion that was coming in and then seeping into the church. And people were mixing Christianity with this kind of pagan philosophy almost. And the, the early church fathers, a lot of what we read is them saying, no, here's why this doesn't make sense. And, and when they're writing about this, they're using the scriptures that were written down by the apostles yeah. as evidence of it. And not only do you have the Gnostics, but you also have the Judaizers coming in with legal uh, legalism. And so the apostles are writing this down because they realize people are going to keep twisting their words. I mean, you see evidence of it. In, in Corinthians, when Paul's writing about uh, individuals, these super apostles that are coming along and teaching stuff in contrary, Paul's naming people by name in his letters. Uh, Peter's warning people uh, where they're saying, hey, they're taking the writings of Paul and they're even twisting that, mm -hmm. you know, for their own devices. And so it was very important that this unwritten tradition was written down. And so uh, we would say these are inspired uh, or God breathed by the Holy Spirit written down. And so as that was written and collected by the church, this dotted line slowly turns into a solid line. And you notice the unwritten tradition is turning into a dotted line. Uh, now, now the tradition, you know, still sticks around, I mean, uh, to a certain extent, but it, it takes a second stage, very much so, and because now you have a, a sure source. You have the scriptures yes. it's written down by the apostles. You say, this is what Paul said, how we do church. This is how you elect an elder. This is how you elect a deacon. This is how you do things decently in order in a church. Um, and so it's important to know those things. And so the unwritten tradition became unreliable and gave way to the New Testament. And then as time went on, tradition starts to fade away. You have the scriptures. Uh, then orthodoxy is this idea that was articulated through the creeds and councils. And that's not a new tradition. That was them saying, hey, let's summarize what the scriptures say. Like, for instance, you know, if you said, what is God? You might say, well, God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are of the same essence. They are all equal in nature, but they're three unique persons. Uh, God the Father is God the Son, but he is not God the Father. And they're both God the Holy Spirit, but they're both not God the Holy Spirit. And they say, that's a lot of wordiness. Or I, you could just say what, Ray? God is Trinity. The Trinity, right? <laughs> and the Trinity is an idea of this orthodoxy, this creed or council that was written down to try to take a complex understanding that would take the flip through multiple scriptures and break it down and make it simple. Yeah. But it's only as good as the scriptures actually teach that.
Yeah, and that's the thing a lot of people miss with that is that they assume that you know things like the Trinity or the deity of Christ was created and conjured up with this ulterior motives, but really it was a lot like even the epistles that we have. It was a response to the world at that time. You know, I mean, why did you know the, the early church had always talked about the Trinity, but they never had to really make a core definition of it because it was never under attack. Yeah. And, I mean, you can only spend so much energy talking about so many things, but once it came under attack, they said, okay, now we need to get together and really hammer this out. And so we have that tradition of Trinity that doesn't appear in the Bible. That doesn't mean that it is like this deposit of faith where we just trust it because somebody said it. We always go back to God's word and say, can it find its foundations here? If it can't, then it doesn't hold water. Absolutely. Scripture is the final authority for our faith and practice, the very definition of sola scriptura, as we'll get to here in a little bit. I can't remember whose turn it is with number three, Ray, but why don't you go ahead and take <laughs> okay. it? Give, give me the chunky one. All right. So the belief in a lineage of apostolic succession that includes absolute authority and infallibility is untenable for many reasons. In other words, this idea that, um, you know, uh, Christ said, hey, you know, whatever you, you know, loose on earth is loosed in heaven, the sins you forgive. This idea that the church has this super authority just doesn't work for a lot of reasons. Uh, so first reason I'll cover. Um, so it's agreed that Peter and the apostles were given authority and guidance to teach the truth. Their authority and teaching continues today, not through this unbroken lineage of succession, but through the teaching contained in the scripture. So yes, these apostles, you know, as we looked at that timeline before, they only had oral tradition for quite, quite a few years. And so the things that they were going to churches as they were you know, preaching the gospel to new people or returning to churches and kind of correcting things, the things they were saying were being said with the authority of God. Mm. But they were also then written down. And so the tradition, this authority that we have today, isn't based on, well, here's what my priest says that the priest before him said, and it's this you know, long line of telephone. But the authority that the church has in any capacity is found purely, once again, in the written word of God and, and nowhere else. Absolutely. So, so the next reason there is the scriptures presented concerning the authority of the apostles concerns them alone. Uh, there's nothing said either explicitly or implicitly concerning the passing on of this authority through apostolic succession. So these verses that says that what the apostles bind on earth will be bound in heaven, the ability to forgive sin, it's only for them. Whatever it might even mean, we're not even trying to define what those even mean right mm -hmm. at the moment, but whatever it was, it was only given to them and never meant for us uh, to be passed on from generation to generation. All right, uh, next, the theory of papal infallibility cannot be found in the church until the Middle Ages. It wasn't declared dogma by the Catholic Church until Vatican I in 1870. So anything else we want to say about these passages, there was just nothing, even in, in early church history, after the scriptures were written, that has any hint of this whole idea of this papal infallibility, where what the Pope says is binding because he's getting it from this invisible deposit being passed down by the Holy Spirit. We just we don't see anything about that until the 1870s. Mm. And that should be problematic, that we can go... You know, centuries upon centuries saying that this deposit's being protected, but no one's really talking necessarily about how the Pope is infallible in his protections of this. Yeah, and it's interesting. This was happened in Vatican I, as you kind of see here. And if you see the timeline here in 1870, most people don't put this together, but what you start to realize is the Roman Catholic Church had kind of declared who would be kings and queens and kind of ruled most of Europe, mm -hmm. uh, all the way up until recently. And they were constantly losing power, not to mention losing also people to Protestantism. And so Vatican I was a reforming of the Roman Catholic Church to figure out how are we going to survive, especially in this day and age where kings and queens are going away and now we're having democracies pop up in, in Europe. We're losing our control. And so this was their uh, way of kind of coming back and trying to garner some power in a lot of ways. Hmm. Uh, and so it's interesting they pull start pulling this papal infallibility out at this time. <laughs> it's almost like a kid's game where, you know, you're starting to lose the game, and so suddenly you make a new rule in the game so that you don't have to lose. And... Oh, whose kids do that? <laughs> I've heard. I've read books about. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a game you can't win because it's always changing. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll skip reading, but you, you can see there, and it'll be in your notes to read Vatican I, uh, 1870, if you want, choose to do so. Um, so as we look here, if God wanted believers to see the church as an institutional authority that houses infallibility, either through the unity of the bishops or the ex cathedra statements of the Pope, 
then it goes without saying that this would be a primary doctrine that the Bible should explicitly address. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, even the apostles, they would have this papal infallibility, right? Mm -hmm. But you see them being wrong. Like, think of Galatians. I mean, Paul has to openly rebuke Peter. Yes. Right? And, uh, and so that right there kind of breaks that all down in my mind in a lot of ways. Uh, while the scriptures contain many opportunities to teach this, either through example in the book of Acts or through explicit instruction in the pastoral epistles, uh, there is no such teaching. In fact, Paul even tells Timothy, uh, show yourself approved, you know, as a workman. Yeah. You know, don't be lazy in your study of the scriptures. Uh, he doesn't say, hey, make sure you got all your tradition memorized and down and, you know, or anything like that. It's, it's give, give credence to the scriptures, which would have been mostly Old Testament scriptures at that time, just yeah. so we're clear. Well, and you think about it, you know, I mean, you read the New Testament especially, the gospel is very clear. There's, people argue it, but it is very, very difficult to say that the gospel is not clearly presented about who Christ was, what our sin has done to, with us before a holy God, our need for a savior, what Christ did on the cross, how you even get saved. You know, people can, can muddy it up, but I mean, really, it's crystal clear taught in scripture if you are just looking for what God's word says. You, for something as important as this whole papal infallibility, you would think it would be equally stated because of how critical that teaching is within the Roman Catholic Church. And yet you have to really squint and twist and come into it with certain assumptions in order to even try to find it in there. Absolutely. So many opportunities to include it, and yet it never is. Wrap up this section here for us. All right. So to rely solely upon unwritten tradition begs the question... It makes one wonder why such an important doctrine is unmentioned in Scripture. So I guess I jumped the gun there. <laughs> um, all attempts to find the doctrine of infallible apostolic succession in Scripture must be labeled as eisegetical theology, which is reading your theology into the text rather than deriving one's theology from the text. So, so kind of like this chart. Yeah. <laughs> so we start on that um, lower right side where we say we want to believe in papal um, infallibility and this apostolic succession. So then we're going to dial it back and say, okay, we want to believe that. Let's go find that in the Bible to make our case. Rather than saying, wow, here's what God's word clearly teaches. So this is what we need to do with our lives today. Because you can't start with the scripture and then get papal infallibility. You have to already assume it's true. Then go find individual verses to support you. So eisegetical theology is really just taking what you already believe and reading it into the text. Yeah, to prove it's cherry picking. Yeah. Yep. Whereas really, as Christians, what we should be doing is starting, what did it mean to the original audience, right? And then letting the scriptures speak for themselves, finding that timeless principle, as it shows here in our chart, and then applying it to ourselves, right? So the arrows are backwards if you're looking at this chart that we have up here right now. Four, uh, it is true that there is no inspired table of contents in the scripture. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Most people don't even realize that chapters and verse numbers aren't even inspired. No, That's we're just not going to get into that. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, in the original Greek, it's all capital letters with no punctuation. Make it even worse. And that's why I'm not learning Greek. <laughs> it's so confusing. Uh, but it is equally true that the scriptures do not teach papal infallibility or the infallibility of tradition. Uh, when, when, it, when it comes to the issues of canon, we must not look for a declaration producing absolute certainty, uh, but a recognition producing moral certainty. Uh, moral certainty is this idea that it's an obligation imposed by the weight of evidence. So you look at all the evidences and say, hey, this must be what it is because everything's pointing in that direction. This evidence is substantial and morally binds the informed, responsible thinker to submit to the evidence. The Roman Catholic solution of infallible tradition does not resolve anything, since according to Roman Catholics, scripture was not infallibly declared until the Council of Trent. So th this is a very interesting thing. It it's... Um, the church really came together in the 4th century and said, not that they cherry-picked which books they wanted in the New Testament, but they basically affirmed it. Mm -hmm. Most of the churches that came out of that time period of persecution and now they had freedom to come together and meet, were saying, hey, we got this, we got this. And they were pulling it together. They had some criteria and they said, hey, we're mostly matching and we're all in agreement. There was just a few books they had that kind of maybe discuss a little bit and work out. And so that's 4th century. So then 1,000, 1,100 years later, in the Counter-Reformation, which is really what the Council of Trent is, you have, they come along and say, whoa, 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 this is really what the canon is. And they added books. Because they had to add books, because they, their tradition had backed them into a corner, and they needed to now find some scripture that at least gave some credence to things. Uh, similar to things like purgatory. Uh, oh, yeah. So, or, or things like that. 
And so it's it's very it, it's uh, it's alternative history sometimes with the <laughs> Roman Catholic Church. Ray, answer what's this question of unity? Answer that one. How do yeah. so? So as we talked about, you know, if you don't have an over an overwhelming or overriding authority who's who's dictating, you know, life and practice, then you're going to have all this fracture, and we're not going to have that unity that Christ prayed for. Yeah. Um, so. <clears throat> There's a few ways that we need to um, to really understand that because that is really, and, and you know, we want to be sensitive. I mean, that's a, a point of um, of struggle and sorrow for a lot of people. I mean, there's people who have left Protestant theology for Catholicism just because they read a verse like that and they say, "Oh, well, the Catholic Church has unity. They're mm-hmm. just one big church. They're not one of these, you know, places where you got churches on street corners across from each other." Yep. Um, so one of the ways to answer that, though, is that the unity that Christ prayed for was not absolute creedal unity. In other words, absolutely agreed in every single individual belief, but functional ontological unity. And this was fulfilled at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit baptized all believers into one body. So in other words, when Christ was praying for this unity, he wasn't praying that we would all get along, hold hands, and agree about everything. Because I think we'll talk later, that's actually good that we don't always agree. Mm. Um, but instead, he was praying that we would be united through the Holy Spirit indwelling all true believers of Jesus Christ. And at Pentecost, that's what we saw, right? In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on everyone, and, and now every believer everywhere is united functionally in this, this Holy Spirit that we are given as, as he seals us for the day of redemption. And so Christ, Christ's prayer was answered, just not how we may have assumed it would be. Because there really is unity. There's unity between the rich man and the poor man when they're in Christ. Mm -hmm. There's unity between the Jew and the Gentile, between male and female. There's unity between Christians who lived 2,000 years ago and us who live today. We're all one in Christ, and that's that unity. If we're truly in Christ, to be baptized in the And even these churches on the street corners would agree on the basics of the need for the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, The the holy living through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, those are things that we may disagree on how we go about that and what that looks like, but we all have this foundational understanding because the Holy Spirit is the one giving us that, that unified truth. Absolutely. Uh, because when it really boils down to it, what most people don't realize is not even the Roman Catholic Church lives up to what they claim. Sure. Yeah. Most people don't realize how much syncretism there really is in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, a Roman Catholic Church in the United States looks like a Protestant church because they're mimicking how that works. A Roman Catholic church, though, in other parts of the country, typically mimics whatever the religion is down there if it's predominant. And so they don't even have unity in how they articulate things. I mean, even look today, you have the Pope who keeps making comments about, hey, maybe we should allow priests to marry. Maybe we should allow people to be homosexuals. Or, or, or maybe we should allow for abortion. I mean, they're changing drastic things that the Roman Catholic church has said no to for hundreds mm-hmm. of years. And, and now you have one person who's going to change it. Well, what's the basis for him changing it? Yeah, and that's that, that authority that they insist is there. And we see where that problem comes in from a, just a functional, functional sense. It's amazing when their tradition lines up with what's going on culturally in the world. Right, yeah. It, you know, whatever keeps you maybe just a little behind the times, but not so far that you're unappealing. Exactly. Um. So there is, however, a basic creed of essential beliefs that has evidenced this ontological unity and mutual indwelling of the Holy Spirit since the beginning of the church. And that's really what we just talked about. We're not going to belabor this point. If you want to read that in full detail, feel free to do so. It's right there. Um, But it must also be stressed that from the outsider's perspective, Catholicism is just one denomination among many thousands. It does seem that way, right? I mean, there's a lot of Catholics, but that doesn't mean that they are somehow their own separate belief system yeah. from, from an outsider's perspective. Uh, but this is also key to point out here, though. The Pope could very well be seen as a divider himself, because rather than one who unites, since the papacy was the primary cause of the Great Schism in 1054, and a major, region, major reason for the Reformation in the 16th century. So many would point back and say, hey, the reason why there was a schism in 1054, which is Roman Catholicism through Eastern Orthodoxy, was because of what the Pope was doing, Mm -hmm. right? And then it was once again because of what the Pope was doing that there was a break with Martin Luther and other Protestants at the time. And so who caused the divide? Well, it was the Roman Catholic Church in a lot of times. So all for the sake of tradition, I might point out, not for what Scripture says. All right, uh, so last, nevertheless, this does not excuse the Protestant Church's lack of practical unity. 
we should all strive to exemplify what we truly are, which is the unified body of Christ. So we do need to be honest and say that, yeah, there are times where we are not unified, where we are bickering over complete and absolute nonsense. And while that doesn't break what Christ prayed for, that's still not us striving towards the same goal because we get so swept up in these minor issues that we let it become a major one. We, For some, we even let it become a point of, oh, you're not truly saved because you believe this secondary or tertiary issue. Yeah, it, sometimes we think unity is, well, we'll just let anything go by mm-hmm. and we'll accept everybody. But really, no, if you look at the New Testament example, they maintain unity by saying, this is the strict standards in which we believe and this is how we practice our faith. And and you see church discipline as a thing. And so uh, a, there cannot be unity when nobody is willing to call out who has actually departed from the faith. Yeah. yeah. So just so you know what we're talking about, here's some beliefs and practices in which the Christians have always been unified. We find unity as Christians in the Protestant denomination in the belief in God, uh, a belief that God created everything, uh, belief in the Trinity, uh, belief in the hypostatic union, that's the idea of Christ is 100% God and 100% man, uh, belief in the resurrection of Christ, belief in the atonement, uh, belief in the sinfulness of man, belief in the necessity of faith in Christ, belief in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And it's actually, uh, for the most part, most Protestant denominations, once they split away from Roman Catholic Church, believe all these things. But you start to see that there are now certain denominations that have said, we do not believe these things. And they have broken unity. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we do need, I think we would agree, that's where we do need to fight. I mean, not in a, in a, in a bickering sense, but we need to contend for that faith. We need to hold people to the truth that's revealed in God's word, regardless of what we may want to believe, whether it's more convenient, whether it's more popular. These are the things worth fighting for. And that this is what we need to be unified in because it's the only way that we can truly live out our purpose on earth as we're serving our God. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I'm not afraid to name names if somebody really has departed the faith mm-hmm. or to warn people, hey, this person's going in a direction that may not end well. Uh, I do it not because I take satisfaction in pointing out people's faults or wrongs because I would hope actually they would repent and return to the faith. But I'm, I'm practicing it and I'm doing it because that's what the apostles did. They laid down the example of that good deposit of faith, so to speak, which I'm supposed to continue to do based on what's in scripture to call out false teaching. Because how else are the sheep within a church supposed to know who they should listen to and who not to listen to? Yeah, exactly. You have to warn people. And that'll do it for part one. I know it's kind of an abrupt end, but then uh, this just transitions into next week's episode where we're going to talk about the more Protestant view that we would hold to of the sufficiency of Scripture. So stay tuned next week. And uh, if you want to see this um are the notes for this. Like I said, there's going to be links down in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.